Welcome to Travel with Brack Tours, a new podcast series about travelling around Ireland and Scotland. We'll be sharing stories and travel tips about visiting both Scotland and Ireland and hearing some great stories from the team at Brack Tours and many guests. Also find out more on how Brack Tours can make your vacation one you'll never forget. At Brack Tours, we didn't invent travel, we made it fun. Welcome to the latest edition of Travel with Brack Tours and uh, in this edition we're heading down to the sunny southeast down to County Waterford and we have a special guest on. A good old friend of ours is Jack Burchell and Jack is from, I suppose people would know him for his Viking walking tours around Waterford and our old friend Peter Clark is back with us. Hello gentlemen, how are you doing this day? Very good and hello Peter. Hello, yeah. Hello, Jack. Great to see you. Definitely old friends. Yeah, It is sunny here today, but it wasn't sunny much for the last week, but it's sunny today. The sun always shines in water for Jack. You used to tell me that anyway. I do walk there. I know the opposite is the truth. Well, many a day, me and you sat in the street corner with raincoats and big umbrellas. <laughs> so, Jack, um, you know, you're well known for your walking tours of the of Waterford and uh, a lot of people listening in on, on this podcast will already know of you. Some of them won't. So um, maybe you could tell us a little bit, a, a bit about yourself. Well, I'm a Czech Borchel. I'm a typical product of a mixed marriage. Now, in this part of the world, a mixed marriage doesn't mean parents of different religious persuasions. In this part of the world, it means parents of different hurling persuasions. <laughs> my father is a Kilkenny man. My mother is a Waterford woman. And they met and married uh, at the time that Waterford met Kilkenny in the 1959 All Ireland. And the first match was a draw. They went on honeymoon and returned, and Waterford beat Kilkenny in the replay. Oh. It almost led to a divorce. So I'm very lucky to be around at all, but I'm here ever since. And uh, so here in Waterford, you're actually on the borders of four counties, really. The city here looks across the river at Kilkenny. If you climb ahead and look downstream, you can see Wexford. If you look upstream, you can see Tipperary. So in this place, it's not a long way to Tipperary at all. Actually, we often wish it was much further. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to hear a lot of this, folks, because Jack's passion for hurling is is a big thing. And hurling is one of our national sports here in Ireland. And uh, with Jack, you're going to really get to know that he's a Kilkenny man at heart. heart. (laughs) But uh, I grew up in Ferrybank, and then my dad, he got a job transfer to Limerick, and I finished up in secondary school in Limerick. But I'd always had a fierce and interest and passion for history and locality. And it was just in the way we were reared, and that history was all around us. Mm-hmm. And when my grandmother came into the house, or my aunts or uncles, they sat down with my mother and father, and immediately it became a kind of a, an almost an impromptu session of oral history. Who married who? And who inherited that farm? And then who, he went to America, or she went to England, or whatever. And it was there in the background the whole time. And we were, were in Ferrybank looking across the docks, and ships came and went. And the old lads around the village, a lot of them had been to sea, and they'd regaled with tales of Newfoundland and Trinidad and Tobago and the West Indies and Liverpool and stuff. And so we didn't know whether it was totally made up or half made up. But actually, it turns out that many of these guys had actually been to sea and had been to all these places. And that kind of sparked an interest. You know, uh, 
if you're in a port city, an old port city like Waterford or Cork or Dublin, uh, and you grew up in the place, say, 100 years ago, you were far more likely to see Newfoundland than you were to see maybe Tipperary up the road or <laughs> far more likely to see Newfoundland or West Indies than you would see Cavan or Monaghan. Everybody uh, jumped so on the boat. <laughs> the ports actually were linked to the world, whereas two miles into the countryside, there was, that was totally different. Uh-huh. And our kind of parish straddled boats that had both the, the rural and the agriculture and the tradition, but also the outward looking thing of the ports and the ships and emigration and all that. So it kind of was interesting that way. And as a result, I developed a fierce interest in history and archaeology and, and geography. I went on to study in New Zealand, history and geography. And I got uh, interested in New Zealand. Uh, there was lots of different types of history. There was the academic stuff and there was the constitutional stuff and the political stuff. But what really interested me was the history of ordinary people, farmers and fishermen and sailors and coal miners and uh, wandering labourers. And that was what interested me. And that was kind of more like social history, really. Yeah. And historical geography fit into that and then archaeology fit into it as well. So I finished up with a degree in history, geography and archaeology. That was it up in in Dublin. In Dublin. Fascinating. Uh-huh. I went on to do postgrad then in Dublin at Queen's University of Belfast in the Institute of Irish Studies. I made some great friends there in the Ulster Folk and Transport Museum. Okay. Uh, cool draw. Yeah. Because they were doing the practical uh, kind of recreation of this stuff and rediscovering how the technology of the past actually worked. You know, it, it seems so obvious just when you think about it today, you jump into your car and you go to the nearest town. But actually, before the motor car, if you were bringing your grain to market, you had to bring it downhill. The nearest town would be a mile up the road, but you had to bring the grain downhill because the horses couldn't put it up the hill. So the market was always down, downstream, not downhill. <laughs> and in the, in the days of sale, if you wanted to go from port A to port B and the wind was against you, you might have to go a thousand miles of a loop to make a hundred mile journey. And that could take a month. Yeah, that well, as you say, these are things that you, you got to, to get involved in and, and I suppose it became a passion for you then because really what you're talking about here is a lot of with people as life stories and, and learning from that and, and bringing it on and I suppose immersing people and educating people yeah. about it. And what then really led me into tourism was I was a postgraduate in the geography department of University College Dublin and the professor and the major figures of the department decided that the post the postgrads were there and the undergrads were coming in from the schools and had all the book knowledge of the history and geography but they couldn't recognise anything in the landscape because they're not all on the blackboard so they decided to bring in a field studies programme where each of the undergraduates would go out about ten times in the winter on a bus with a guy like me and I'd teach about the, the moraines and the eskers and the folds and the falls and the flora and the fauna and the wildlife and stuff, and the agriculture. And that sounded like a great idea in May. All the academic staff were fully in favour of this idea in May. But, of course, it didn't come into operation until November. When November <laughs> came around, all the important academics had much more important things, things to, to do, do. <laughs> than to bring undergraduates out in the rain to the Wicklow Mountains and the Liffey Valley and the Vine Valley. So the juniors like myself got the job to do it, and from that developed my interest in tourism. At the end of that season, about the following May, the coach operator, Willie Doyle, who since has died, a gentleman from Kerry, mm-hmm. he approached me and said, Jackie, do you know the stuff you're doing with the students? 
could, could you do that for tourists? I said, oh, no, no, I said, couldn't be. So I have a bunch of tourists coming. He says, and just the stuff that you're doing now, he says, all the stuff about the, the rocks and the, the flora and the fauna and the social history and do that. But he says, I understand nothing about tourism. She says, don't worry. I look after hotels and airports and business. I look after the people. And that's how I've been into tourism. That was, wow. that's, that was your apprenticeship. <laughs> I remember going out, actually, pick up the first group in Shannon Airport. And we reached a pub that Peter would know well, Setroyd's Pub, yeah. very early in the morning. And Setroyd's was known that time that you get an early drink there. It's kind of it catered to the workers of Shannon Airport. Early house. The tour. <laughs> they said, Willie, let me offer it Setroyd's. I can't face the group. He said, they're not the toilet. I'm, I'm going to keep this bus at 50 miles an hour. Jump out the front door if you want to. <laughs> but I'm not letting you out. So then I got into tourism. I continued work also in the academic side that I... I taught extramural courses for Maynooth and University College Cork over the years. So I kept my hand in both branches, both the academic and the, the tourist. And uh, then I got married in 1988 uh, to Carmen. And she was in, she was a Monaghan woman with a job in Waterford. And I was in, let's say, mostly in the Burren and in Connemara. So we came home, I came home to set, to set up the Walker Tours in 1990. And they've been going strong ever since, except for COVID. <laughs> yeah, no, and, and really your name's kind of like an institution down in Waterford now. Like, you know, uh, Waterford's never mentioned without Jack Burchill in, in, in it as well. And, and that's very good. Peter, your relationship, you know, you've known um, Jack over the years. Uh, and, and I suppose it's similar in a way, you know, when you started out tour guiding too, Peter. You know, it, it's it's learning about the people and the landscape and getting around. So, you yeah, know, well, I yeah. say about people, it always makes a good guide because you really get into the the ins and, and, and outs of what you, you have to know about really the real Ireland. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, actually, Jack's after bringing something up there that uh, that just resonated with me there. That uh, he, he he's talking about the social history of a community, and and you know what, as you know, Colm, since we started Brack Tours, uh, I've been preaching to everybody that listen that you should spend more time in each part of Ireland you're in. <laughs> in other words, instead of trying to do all the coast the coast of Ireland. Um, the 500, was it, five, five and a half thousand miles of coastline in seven days instead of just staying because like if you get into an area and spend a bit of time there you get to hear some of those folk tales and um, and uh, there is so many of those because like I, I was born, I was raised in, in rural Ireland and uh, the house that I grew up in with my mum and dad and uh, seven other children, we were a what we call a Kaling house. I don't know what you call it down in, in Southern Ireland, but I was from Cavan. We called it a Kaling house. So neighbours every evening around about six thirty to seven thirty, they just walk into the house. So there was no knocking on the door. The door never was locked. Actually, there was no lock for the door. And they walked in, they sat down, my mother made tea and whatever else was going. And they just related stories of the day and about all the neighbours and who went where and who did what. Actually, the safest place to be was in our house. 
because <laughs> if you weren't there, you might be talked about, right? You understand that, Jack, right? <laughs> there's, the, there's the old meeting houses, Jack, then, and Waxford and Walford, isn't there? Um, well, here it wouldn't be called a Kelly house so much as a rambling house. Yeah. And say again, a rambling house, isn't rambling it? house, where people would ramble yeah. into the neighbourhood. And you see, very often, they rambled into the neighbouring house because they hadn't got the money to go to the pub. Yeah. They didn't have spendable cash. And yes. So they couldn't go to the pub, and they went to the cinema was was a, 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 a big event to go off to the cinema. So they and in the days before mass television and you know internet, they entertained one another from within yes. the intellectual resources of the community. Yeah, and the fellow who had been you know a way to see was a great source of of external information, or the fellow yes. who had been off to World War One or whatever, you know. My, yeah. my, my grandfather, mother's people were from County Waterford. They lived in a little village called Stradbally. Uh, and they were labouring people. And uh, so they worked for farmers and they worked for the landlords and they worked in the agriculture. But it was very really strange in 1926, a ship went ashore right beside the village of Stradbally called the Cirilla Amores. And the, the key were still there. You can see the low tide. And sailors were, 26 sailors were, were pulled ashore. There were no debt. And so the ship had come from uh, the Portuguese colonies of Mozambique, Angola, and Lisbon, bound then for Liverpool. Mm-hmm. So before the Gardaí and the customs could arrive to inspect the wreck, anything of value was lifted and hidden under haystacks and under bales <laughs> of straw and behind cows and cowhouses and all that. And the boys were drinking various types of wine and stuff for weeks on end. And eventually they ran out of stuff and there was one small barrel left. And they, 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 they punched the barrel anyway and got it open and they poured out the stuff of this liquid. It was dark in colour, but it had a strange smell. And they called in the resident experts of the, of the parish. These were the fellows who had been to sea and a couple of the veterans from World War One, And they all sniffed and smelled it and they were afraid of it. So they couldn't, so they couldn't drink it. Then one of them got a brainwave. The... The, the village idiot was spotted coming down from the handball alley. And he was called in, Mikey, come in here, taste that. So they gave him a cup of it. And they kept him under close observation for half an hour. They didn't pass out, they drank it and finished the barrel and never knew what they drank. <laughs> You're talking oh, about a Kelly house, Peter. You're talking about a rambling house down there up in the north. They used to call them safe houses. <laughs> 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 but like your stories, Jack, you know, I can resonate myself in, in our own area here too, especially along the border and the smuggling stories and things like that too. You know, and, and these things were a way of life. Uh, and particularly when there was partition in, in, in Ireland too. And unfortunately in my own parish here in South Armagh, you know, a lot of those old stories are being lost and there's very few people, you know, keeping track of them. It's a younger generation into, and I suppose the old storytellers are like yourself and somebody say you, you're like a Shanachie yourself, you know, that part of, of our history is kind of disappearing a lot in, in certain areas. And I suppose it's people like yourself and even Peter, I know there from Peter and listening to his stories and people will know resonate with that too over the past podcasts, Peter, and that, and you telling stories. You know, yeah. it, it, it is an important part of Irish life and something that we don't really want to lose. It is, and, and yeah. you know, the technology is changing so fast now. And, you know, the kids are learning a new computer product or app almost every week. But actually, way back in the 1930s, 
the new Irish state set up after 1921 in partition. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the 30s, they came out with a revolutionary idea. And that idea was that they would turn every school child in Ireland into a folklore collector. So they organised it through the national schools, the length and breadth of 26 counties. And each kid was sent home, usually age about 12, so to be in fifth or sixth class, 12 years of age or 10 or 11 age, and told to, to write down the stories that they collected in their own locality. And it happened in every... My parents are in it. I'm sure Peter's parents are in it or uncles and aunts. And they wrote down the stories they collected at home and recorded. But then in recent years, all that material from the school's manuscript collection of the Irish Folklore Commission is now available online. So you can now type in on your computer anywhere in the world, your area of Ireland, the National School, and see what was written down of local folklore in 1936, 37, 38, and who the kid collected it from, and where he or she lived, and what age they were. So you're actually getting the verbatim accounts of people who were born in the 1860s and 1870s telling stories to kids in the 1930s, and it's there in their own handwriting in the manuscripts collection, uh, the school, school manuscripts collection online. It's absolutely fantastic. It's great. It's great to have that. And I suppose, <clears throat> to, thanks to technology, it's one way that we're saving it. Yeah. You know, in, in another way. Um, do you do much lecturing now, Jack? I don't do too much of recent years. It's, it's declined uh, in recent years. I, as the walking tour business got busier and busier, mm-hmm. all the available time slots for regular lectures for college got thinner and thinner. So I haven't done very much in recent years, but up until the last five or six years, quite a bit. Uh, hopefully maybe they'll start up again uh, there's been a kind of return to study with this uh, closure yeah, and, and probably I suppose mature students as well too uh, I've given a few Zoom lectures for, to various historical societies over the last few months uh, I've also uh, had found time at last to do a, a chapter for a book on the history of the Barony of Galtier in County Waterford it's the okay. Barony down along the harbour with the most influence of the sea and uh, fascinating stuff there in the early 19th century. And I've also done, through Carmen's uh, centre here, working on the making of a video film uh, to go out online for the parish of Killay. Very good. And uh, people from across the world whose ancestors are from Killay, we hope will have an interest in this, showing the places where their ancestors were born, where they went to school, the churches, the landscape, the, the, the big houses, some of the smaller houses as well, and places where people lived and worked and, and uh, emigrated from. That's good. You also have, um, I know from past experience, but you, Jack, you also have, uh, you won a bursary and, and you, um, for um, Lincoln, wasn't it, with Waterford and uh, and the southeast with, with Newfoundland. Newfoundland, yeah. yeah. Uh, there's a huge link to Newfoundland here, which is, is now largely forgotten on the Irish side, but is very much part of the memory of the people of Newfoundland. Uh-huh. It's unique in European history. Almost half of the population of Newfoundland come from within 25 miles of where I'm sitting. That's the wow. southern tip of Kilkenny, the southeastern tip of Tipperary, east Waterford, south westward. And that, and that links back to the trading ports, isn't that it? That goes right back to the 1600s. Yeah. But it's actually yeah. it's the most intensive chain migration from any part of Europe, any part of the New World. It's unreplicated in any other uh, experience. And even to this day, I've been to Newfoundland, gave talks out there. Uh, you can walk down villages in Newfoundland and you swear you're in South Wexford or South Kilkenny. The accents are unchanged. 
The surnames are unchanged. Their religious and culture and everything. The only thing has changed is they have no interest in hurling. <laughs> the ice hockey. But, but they might be using the sticks for other purposes, maybe. The ice hockey, you see. There's no flat green fields in Newfoundland, only barren <laughs> rocks. And the only thing flat in Newfoundland in winter, the ponds freeze over solid and that becomes flat. So they transfer the hurling from the green fields to the frozen ponds. And the thing they hit in ice hockey is called the puck, mm-hmm. which is the Gaelic. Verb for the strike of the ball in hurling. Puck the ball, so yeah. It's a trade, straight transfer from the hurling over yeah. to the ice hockey. Uh, so there's so many right. links. So many links. Good that you can tie in. Just, just before you go any further on that there, column, you know what? I just had an idea there. What Jack brought up there about the collection of folklore stories from uh, children long ago, and that's now on that. That's now online. Wouldn't that be a very useful tool for people researching their their ancestors? You know, like those in America who want to, and and uh, they get into an area, and I know you can get a lot of records from parish records online now, but that, those stories. Might they might find some of their uh, their ancestors' stories right there? What was the name of that? What was the name of that, uh, that platform again? The, the National Schools Manuscript Collection, Irish Folklore Commission. Oh yeah, that National Schools. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. It's absolutely uh, fascinating, and uh, yeah. it, it, people's answers there, but also the stories that your ancestors were grown up with. Mm-hmm. The tales of this part of the country, Finn McCool and Satanta, mm-hmm. and up in your part of the country, Koholan and yeah. and the Red Branch Knights, that's all there too. The ancient mythology there, and then the local yeah. stories are also there. It's, uh, it's, yeah. it's very it's very good for um as you said, Peter, for for, for people to, to maybe look into it and that. Uh, just in general, and um, Jack, I know you have a big passion there for for your hurling, and you've mentioned that, uh, and and Kilkenny and the big rivalry there between, I suppose Kilkenny and and Waterford and Tipperary and that island. Like it is one of our national sports, and and it's a it's a great passion. I know you love uh, talking about that to our guests. I suppose one of your best attributes is how you blend your stories, uh, in and your humour, etc., and interact with the people, and and uh, you know it's probably. Probably how your tours have become so popular. Well, I always start from the premise that these people are here on their holidays. Uh, they're not to be bored and they're not to be lectured to. They're here to learn a bit and enjoy it. And the, the two are equally important, the learning the bit and the enjoying the bit. And not too much of one or too much of the other. I think if you blend it right, people will learn and enjoy the process and very much appreciate it afterwards. But they don't need long lists of reading lists and citations and references. That can be done in a university seminar. Mm-hmm. These people under holidays. Yeah, I mean, your approach to it, they, they, the way you do it is just magnificent. There's nobody else in the country that I know of that can uh, carry that out as you do because you, everybody that's on tour with you are part of the story. You involve them as being part of the story. And it gives them, it's, it's very uplifting to what, I mean, it's just a wonderful t- approach and a wonderful tool that you have uh, just to have them. They all become different characters in the history. And well, like that, I mean, they're talking about it four or five days later, you know. And that's and, what makes it fun, you see. 
The, That's what the fun is, yes, absolutely. People will appreciate that the John Roberts, the architect, built two cathedrals in a city hall in the same city, and he could give the dates of the buildings all that. But people will forget the dates of those buildings yeah. later. Yeah. But yeah. they remember, oh, that's the fellow over there who ran away with her when she was 16 and they had 22 kids together. <laughs> it's not, it's not everybody can do it, Jack. And this and is lived the thing. 83 years of age. <laughs> yeah. It's not everybody could do it. And, you know, people say a lot of, of you know, guides, oh, yeah, we really enjoyed it. But with yourself, you're just a natural storyteller. And I think that's what really grips the people and grips the clients and grips, you know, people that come to hear a little bit about the city and Waterford and, you know, with Viking history and that. You immerse them, as I say, and you make it fun. Uh, yeah. And that's very, very important. And that's a memory, as Peter has rightly touched on there, that people well, will take back with them. Yeah, I also think that in this area of the Southeast, we're very lucky in that we're the closest part of Ireland to Europe and yeah. some of the richest agricultural valleys. So people were moving and trading in and out of here. I mean, people remember the Vikings. Okay, that's a thousand years ago. But just down the harbour here, there's a, a, a beach called Woodstown, which means nothing. But in Gaelic, it's, the word is Travelish. And the hill above it is Harristown in English. But in Gaelic, it's Nukavelish, the hill of the Milesians, the beach of the Milesians, Trafilish and Nokavilish. Right. And in ancient Irish mythology, the Milesians were the people who came here from Spain mm-hmm. and were the ancestors of the Celts and the Gaels. So that's going back, that particular element is going back probably 4,000 years. Yeah, wow. that's crazy. So wow. it's going down to the Saudis of Ireland where the Vikings met the Irish and the Irish met the world. And <laughs> <laughs> in, in a nutshell for you. <laughs> If uh, if you were to if you were to choose three most popular sites in in or most attractive sites in Waterford, I mean I don't know if you could bring it down to three, but but what would be the top three? Do you think? Well, I I, I particularly uh, like the Catholic Cathedral here. Yes, it encapsulates the story of repression and subjugation and liberation and emergence and right. It, the only Catholic cathedral in Ireland to be built, or in Britain either, to be built in the 18th yes. century. All right. And it's the only one which is actually modelled on the Baroque architectural style of Europe. All the okay. rest of our cathedrals, like Armagh and Monaghan and Cavan, they're all either the classical or the Gothic. But it's yes. a, a direct link into the European Correct. of yeah. that time. And Waterford is the only city in Europe where both the Catholic and the Protestant cathedrals, the two cathedrals were built by the same man, so it's a yeah. fascinating story. And it links Ireland to Europe. The repression began during the time of the Thirty Years' War in Germany, and we call that time Cromwell over here. Right. The repression ended at the French Revolution, which meant that the Pope and the King of England, even though they hit each other's guts, now had a new enemy on the block and had to cooperate. Yeah. It ties <laughs> the local into the international. That, for me, is a very interesting story. I also love... Uh, the Reginald's Tower yeah. it's kind of the linchpin of the whole city's history from Viking to Norman right up to the present day and it's now a museum and I mean there's very few places you can find it that that's been there for a thousand years <laughs> yeah yeah it's over a thousand years yeah yeah, yeah. It's fabulous and, and, and it's just in, in really really good condition still to this day isn't it 
Well, it's been maintained very well now in recent. I know. Yeah. But the Office of Public Works, uh, a much maligned institution. But, yeah. government. <laughs> but I suppose like national parks and monuments everywhere, they tend yeah. to do things a little bit slower, but they tend to do things very well. And methodical, yeah. And I think in America you'll find the same people, same people mm-hmm. who say national parks and monuments are very slow or too, they're not quick to do stuff, but they do it right. And I think the same with the OPW here. They may be slow and annoying at times for tour operators, but yeah, they do it correctly in the end. <laughs> well, Reginald's uh, Tower has been many things, many uses, hasn't it, down through the years? Well, actually, it, it, it suffered all sorts of ignominies. It's been the tourist office. Yeah. It's been tool shed for the council workers and the old wheelbarrows. It was an air <laughs> shelter. It was a prison. It was a town crier's house. Yeah. It was a munitions factory. It was yeah. a mint for making coins. Uh, yeah. Actually, one of the things that struck me in, in my travels overseas, we went to, to Reykjavik maybe 25 years ago. And, of course, being interested in the history of that, my first port of call in Reykjavik after the pub was next morning down to the National Museum in Iceland. Walked through the front door of the museum in Reykjavik in a glass case in the front hall, first exhibit, a hoard of coins minted in Reginald's Tower Waterford. Wow. Reykjavik. <laughs> Crazy, the Viking history. So Reginald's Tower, Jack, so what's your last choice then? My third choice is the Thomas Francis Marr. And he has two locations, I suppose, and so he's a statue on the Mall, and his home, which is now the Granville Hotel. And his story is a fascinating story. He starts off with a privileged childhood. Parents were very wealthy merchants. Grandfather made a fortune in Newfoundland. He got a fine education uh, into barrister and law and all that. Then joined the Irish Revolutionary Movement in 1848, uh, condemned to debt as a rebel and a, for, for, for treason. He unfurled the Irish tricolor for the first time here in Waterford on the mall. He, he's sentenced to death, is commuted to life imprisonment in Tasmania, after, from which he escapes after four years, uh, makes his way to the United States, rises to the people of the great Irish-American political leaders in New York. He was reckoned to be the best orator in New York in the mid-19th century. And then, then goes to Nicaragua and down to Central America, prospecting a route for what was to become the Panama Canal much later. Mm. But the American Civil War intervened and the canal has put out the long finger. He then raises the famous Irish brigades for the American Civil War and fights against the Confederacy, against the slave states, and finishes up as acting governor up in Montana. And uh, he disappears mysteriously, probably murdered in the Missouri River, aged, what was it, about 56 or something, or 46, I think. Uh, so a life that spanned the world and had all the adventure and uh, a man really before his time that he was a, in some ways a 20th century liberal 19th century world uh, uh-huh. his contemporaries of his own class the wealthy thought he was completely bonkers the common people loved him that's it he was a yeah. man of the paper <laughs> I, love, I love his quote in the court, in the court after being convicted is that where he promised that the next time we do much better as a revolution? That's the one, yeah, yeah, that's the one. <laughs> it's yeah. funny, I've seen a similar statue um, to him over in Butte, Montana. That's right, it was that in Montana. 
Yeah, he, he became governor uh, there. Beard, no, known as Shamrock City. <laughs> and, uh, because of the, the amount of Irish that uh, probably emigrated to it. Well, Butte so, actually, the no, Butte was the most Irish city in North America in the 19th century. Uh-huh. Uh, when the copper mine opened up in Butte, the extent of copper was so big there and they had the railway to get it out to the market. The world copper price collapsed. The Irish copper mines in Wicklow, in Cork and in Waterford closed. But the mine owners in Butte were very smart. They sent agents over to Ireland to pass out free tickets to the miners here. Free passage, yeah. Free passage uh. themselves, their family, etc. all the way to Butte if they worked for them in Butte. And by the 1890s, Butte was just over 90% Irish. Irish, that's right. And uh, the other biggest group that was the Finns. Uh-huh. So yeah. St. Patrick's Day was a big event and the Finnish holiday came about a week later. Uh, and amazingly, the copper miners of Butte were the highest paid industrial workers in the world. They had a very strong union. They had a five-day week. They had overtime. They had retirement pensions and they had sick pay all before World War One. Wow, it's crazy, isn't it? Actually, just when you're talking about that, there's a, um, an album by a group called Solace. Peter, you would have heard of Solace. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah. Um, and they made an album completely on the history of uh, Butte, Montana, and it was called Shamrock City. And one of those stories was about a, a miner called Michael Conway. He was an up-and-coming boxer, though he was, and, and how he was boxing for money out there. But a sheriff wanted him to, to throw a, the fight for him but he wouldn't do it and how he got his cohorts to beat him up after the fight. And that's how he lost his life. True story. I'm from a man from open County Mayo. Uh, it's a beautiful story, but again, that links back again, as you say, Jack there to, you know, the likes of Waterford, the port people emigrating and things like that. So what is the future for Jack Burchill? Jack Burchill is <laughs> waiting for the COVID to pass, to return to the streets to talk. Uh, in the meantime, I'm walking the countryside in the highways and byways of Waterford, Tipperary and uh, Kilkenny, enjoying myself. But I want to get back to work and I want to do tours. I'm just waiting for it to bring them back to me. Bring them, bring them up, back. Bring them I, th- I think we're all, we're all in the same boat and, and, and we, we can't wait till, I suppose, people, people come back here to, to visit us again. And that uh, Any new ideas? Any new tours, maybe? Yeah. Uh, there's a lovely, well, I probably won't have time to do it, but there's some magnificent walks along the South Leinster Way. Uh-huh. Uh, for those who are interested in a full day's stroll in the countryside, there's some great walks on the South Leinster Way, and they're interested, they're, they're village to village, so you start in one village, and another village. It's a different product than what I do, but it's something for, to, for maybe if you're Peter, you to keep in mind, if you hang out with the strolling and hiking in the, in the countryside, not mountain climbing, but just... Country what the landscape, the scenery is magnificent, the wildlife is there. We did a section up and around in Ishtig in the on the, the slopes of Mount Brandon there last spring, and we saw more words of prey in the day than we did with people. Than we did people. Wow, it's a beautiful area up there. Yeah. And, uh, kestrels and sparrowhawks, and it was just beautiful. And once you get a half a mile away from the village, you're on your, you're on your own. Yeah, it's, like, it's like the Camino model, isn't it? Um, that, that's become popular around the world now. Mm. People go and do active, uh, 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 something active like that. Another lovely one is, is the Barrow Towpath. I've walked that now from St. Mullins up to Carlo. And it's along the bank of the oh. Barrow. And you swear you're in the Amazon. At times you can't even yes. traffic or anything. 
and it's nice and flat. It's got the, the towpad where the horses used to pull the barges. And again, you take five or six mile sections of that and do it in pieces along the barrow. It's absolutely gorgeous. Of course, you're weather dependent. Yeah, it's yeah beautiful, it's 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 a beautiful area of the country, though. You know, it's fantastic down there. You mentioned Innistig, even the history of Innistig alone, yeah. you know, itself, even the walk around the, the village there is beautiful. Um, but, uh, no, Jack, it's been great to to, uh, to catch up with you. As I say, it's long overdue. Um, it's nice to see a friendly face again. And it's great to have Peter back on too. I know the two of you go back a long way. And I know that the two of you be, be well abled and well looking forward to, to meeting up again and having an alpine down in Waterford. In I'll the look near <laughs> yes yes uh, it's, it's been brilliant having you on Jack and look as I say please God we'll, we'll get to see you again soon for, for our listeners too they can actually you have your website isn't that right so they can yeah. log on to it www.jackswalkingtours.com that'll find me so there you go folks you heard it from the man himself Um Great man to listen to. And actually on that website, you'll actually see some of the publications that Jack had out there. He mentioned one or two things there. Uh, so you'll be able to find links to that. Jack, a pleasure as always. Uh, thanks very much for taking part with us. And Thank as you. I said again, see you soon. Thanks again to Peter hopping in there. It's been great. Thank you. And keep coming. So that's it for the day. Thanks for listening. Thanks to all those who contributed for the stories. And if you'd like to find out more about travelling to Ireland or Scotland, visit our website at www.bracktours.com. Until next time, take care.